0: Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley. Brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest, Elizabeth Devita Rayburn, Ted's sister. An author of The Empty Room, Surviving the Loss of a Brother or Sister at Any Age, is going to be very enlightening for all of you bereaved siblings. Elizabeth is not only has a personal experience, but she's a real expert in dealing with uh, siblings who have lost children. and has interviewed 77 for her book. She is also has a master's degree in science, from writing from John Hopkins University, and a degree in public health from Columbia. She has written on science and health issues for both the Washington Post and Harper's Bazaar. She lives in New York City with her husband, writer, and author, Paul Rayburn. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I really enjoyed reading your book, The Empty Room. I received so many insights from it for myself regarding the loss of a sibling. It was so interesting in hearing about um, the story of your brother, Ted's death and, uh, and his life, and also hearing the voices of the 77 bereaved uh, siblings that you interviewed. Mm, thanks. In fact, in reading your book, it gave me an opportunity to discuss my son's death with my three daughters, and it turns out um, what came up was that my husband had also had a brother die at birth. Oh, my. And was actually never acknowledged by the family, so wow. it was quite a discussion. And I'm sure this show is going to be a great benefit to our listeners. It's already been to me. And I'd like to start the program uh, by having you share with our audience uh, the story of Ted's um, life and uh, I just wanted to say because so many people are familiar with this that uh, his story was combined with another boy's story in 1976 for a made-for-TV movie called The Boy in the Bubble starring John Travolta. And uh, I understand he had aplastic anemia. You can talk more about that. Mm-hmm. But I would love to have you uh, give us, uh, tell us about the events that led up to Ted's going to the hospital, and describe how he lived. And you do such a great, vivid job of it your, in your book. And talk to us about how it is for siblings.
1: Okay. Um, well, it started. I was six. My brother was nine and a half. And it started with some bruises that he uh, just seemed to be acquiring. And I go, I don't remembered exactly. Part of the story is gleaned from my mother, but she tells me that we were sitting at the dinner table one night and that she looked down at my brother's legs. This was September, and you could still wear shorts. And she commented, well, when you look at that, he has more bruises. And my father is an oncologist, so he works with blood diseases all the time. And, he looked and down I remember at my saying he was head of
0: the hospital there, at right?
1: yeah. the oncology department? Uh, yeah. I, he eventually became director of the National Cancer Institute um, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. At that time, he was head of a branch of oncology, I think. Um, but he was familiar with um, the bruises caused by blood diseases, which, which tend to be a lot bigger. I describe them in the book as like spilled pots of paint under the skin um, than, than what your garden variety bruises are. And he looked down at my brother's legs and knew. He didn't say anything at the time. Uh, he just said something like, like, maybe I'll just bring him into the hospital you know, just, just to check him out. And um, I think he brought him in after dinner. And I, I guess for the next morning, they had a diagnosis, which was a plastic anemia. Um, it's a really rare disease. You're more likely to be struck by a lightning than to get this disease. Um, and what happens is that the bone marrow, which is at the center of our bones and produces white blood cells and red blood cells, and you know all the things that help us function and, and fight off infection, has just stops functioning. Mm-hmm. And so it often is sort of insidious, and it's, encroaches on you, and by the time people are, are diagnosed, they're often pretty far advanced. Um, and that was the case with my brother. He had almost no immune system by the time he was diagnosed. Um, so, and there was no treatment. So the only thing they could do was to give him blood transfusions and uh, platelet transfusions. And, and, and hope so that they had him. hope at first that he might just, uh, go and just recover from it, right? They had well, no idea. Well, there were some cases of people spontaneously recovering from the disease. So that was the hope. Um, barring that, they could give him transfusions, and that's what they tried to do at first, just to keep him at home and do that. And then a week after his diagnosis, I guess, he woke up in the middle of the night with a fever and my parents panicked and brought him to the hospital. And there was one um, other alternative, which was a sterile bubble room that had just been invented a year or two earlier, um, and they used it for cancer patients who'd been getting big doses of chemotherapy and whose immune systems were temporarily knocked out. So They would put them in there for a couple of weeks until they could rebound. And so um, they thought that was the only thing that they could do to keep him safe was to put him in this room for a little while and and right. hope that his immune system came back. A little while is key to that. I'm sure yeah, they just thought they were just you know it was
0: only going to be a week or two or something.
1: Right, and it turned out to be eight and a half years, and he didn't wow. make it out. So, mm-hmm. um, so it just our our family life from then on revolved around the hospital. Mm-hmm. You know we. I I got up in the morning and went to school, and my father went to work, and my mother went to the hospital and hung out with my brother. And then at 3, she came home, and we had dinner at the house. And then after that, we went to the hospital. And the room, the bubble room, took up half of a regular hospital room, and it was divided in half by a plastic curtain. And so we would be on the other side, and that other side became our family room. And so we would sit there and read and watch TV and talk and listen to music. And and that just became normal life for eight and a half years. Wow. And your dad, was
0: he at by uh, Ted? Was he at the hospital there around him?
1: That- um, I'm not sure how much he saw him during the day because he was pretty occupied with research and seeing mm-hmm. patients. I know he was around and probably stopped through a lot, but I don't know that it was his regular pattern to, to always be popping into the room during the day. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about Ted. He sounded like quite a character reading the book. <laughs> <the bad guy. laughs> he was a huge character. Um, he was... An eccentric. He was the kind of kid my mother used to say he'd, he'd go off to school, and she'd wait for him to come home, and and she'd get worried because school would have been over for an hour or something like that, and she'd see no sign of him. And we only lived about a block and a half away from the school, and and she'd go to look for him, and he'd be you know stooped over at the side examining a bug or a stick or something. He just could get absorbed in his own world. He wasn't a boys' boy. The type he was out playing sports and and sort of muscling around with other kids. He was he was sort of introverted and artistic and. Thoughtful and creative. I think he wrote a play when he was eight or nine. Um, you know, he was just very interested in expressing himself and, and you know, like I said, a, a bit eccentric in that sense, which turned out to be a very good thing because, you know, to be isolated in a room like that, if, if he had lived for sports or something like that, I, I just don't know how he would have managed. But because he was such a resourceful person and, and so creative, he actually managed to grow there. Um, in interesting ways, he became a, a, a really good writer, a really talented musician. Um, got involved in CB radio and talked to people on the airways. I mean, he was just a you know an interesting kid, and he attracted a lot of people around the hospital who would first be curious about the situation, and then they would get interested in him. And so people just started to sort of flock around and filter through his room, and the same thing with you know astronauts and actresses and people like that who would you know, be doing this nice thing to go visit this sick child, and then they would get interested in him and start coming back because they were so, enjoyed his company.
0: Now, did you ever feel like he got more attention than you did, even in the bubble, or was that oh, good yeah. for you? Or?
1: I mean, I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure how consciously I was aware of it or aware that it was perhaps not a great situation, but I, I, I'm very aware, looking back, that um, I became the silent observer. You know, I was. I was, my mother says, the outgoing one, but but I became very quiet. I watched. I was. I described myself as the, the prop person to my brother's center stage performance, and so it all revolved around my brother. And I was sort of supporting that whole thing. So, and it was also required of me, basically, in this kind of circumstance, because he needed so much, and his you know situation was so dire that I just sort of not express any needs, not get angry, not get upset. I just always had to be okay, so that everything could be focused on making this. This enterprise that we had going in this room work. So,
0: uh, Ted lived in um, a, what would you call it a germ-free environment oh, or sterile, yeah sterile room, sterile bubble. Room. Sterile room for yes. how many years?
1: Eight and a half years.
0: For eight and a half years. Yeah. And uh, and Elizabeth spent a great deal of time there, and then um, her brother died, and I and I know that you then worked at the hospital.
1: Yeah, I did a lot of volunteer work. Um, I guess starting starting. Shortly after his death, Um, I did an internship there when I was in high school, and then I worked there a summer after college, working in the labs, basically.
0: Yeah, and I was thinking about that. Was that a way for the medical community to hold you, do you think? I don't know what that was. And help you, and the the staff, a way for them to stay close to Ted or help your family, or I was wondering how you would look at
1: that. You know, I don't know what it was from from their side. You know, I think partly it was that. We had known these people for eight and a half years, and they were family, and we were used to seeing them all the time. So there may have been a sense to me that I wanted to stay connected. Mm -hmm. Um, And that this was the environment I knew. I knew that environment much better than I knew normal environment. I was comfortable there in an odd sort of way. I'm still strangely comfortable in hospitals. Uh In a Um,
0: different
1: way, I'm sure, than other people. I feel very at home there. It's the kind of place where other people's blood pressure goes up when they go in, and mine goes down, because I, I know... I know these places, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that good or bad? I mean, what is your, I mean, or is it good or bad, of course, pejorative words, but what what would you say it is
1: um, for you? It, it, it's fine. It, I, I find it sort of an interesting aspect of myself. It's come in handy at times when I've had to go in for myself or you know, friends who have had crises and they need, you know, someone fellow to be with them and they call me and I can go hang out there with them and, sort of exude a little bit of calm that they can hang on to. So in that sense, it's been a good thing. But otherwise, it, it, I don't think of it necessarily as good or bad. It just is a piece of myself that it's a remnant of that experience. Because
0: mm-hmm. I'm okay. sure, uh, you know, a lot of our other si- sibling um, listeners will have had the same experience. Yeah. I'd, I was spending a lot of time with siblings in and out of the hospital. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So I um, wondered could you talk about... Um, Siblings grappling with uh, their, whether it's their lost claim. I think that's so interesting.
1: Yeah. Interesting um, well, this came about because as I was writing one chapter of my book and I was trying to, I told what happened to my brother and sort of my parents and all that kind of thing. And then as I tried to sit down and write my own story, I couldn't write it. I had total writer's block. could not start a sentence with the word I and finish it. And I realized that on some profound level, despite all the work and research I had done, and, and yeah. yeah, it happened to me too, that I didn't really believe it, that it was my story to claim. Um, it wasn't mine. And it was really only in, in doing more interviews with other people and in prompting them to claim the story by telling it to me that I was able to be, even begin to broach this. And I realized that the this, this simple act of telling the story and saying it happened to me is, is such a profound thing. It's, it's overcoming this block of what we've been told all along, that it's not ours. And you can't mourn unless you claim the story. So um, telling the story became a, a huge... Um, step in in healing. So for me to, to actually actively write it and for other people to tell me became a, a, a much more important event than any of us realized, I think. Could you talk a little bit more about not being able to mourn unless you tell your story? You know, um, I, I think you think you know the story and, and you walk around with it, but there is something specific to you looking at how it happened, you picking the significant events, you putting order to them and making sense of them that, that um, makes you inhabit your story differently. So I think just the act of doing that is a way of, uh, an active way of claiming a story that just walking around knowing that your brother died um, is not. And I think that is a beginning process toward bringing yourself to acknowledging that this happened to you and, and that it's yours to mourn and that then allows you to, to follow that path. Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, a woman named Laura
0: tried to get information from her aging mother and finally realized that she'd have to deal with her sibling death a relationship on her own because her mother, uh, all the other family members that died, and her, her father and her mother would not give her that information. Right. And so she had to do it on her own. Right. And um, I, it was interesting to me how you talked with her and how she was able to, to do that.
1: Right.
0: Uh, do you have any suggestions for people who can't get information on their sibling death? Story.
1: Um, well, in her case, um, you know, she had nothing because she had only been one and a half when her sister died. She was, her sister was hit by a car in front of their, their home and she had no memory of it. Um, and I have to say, that's, that's a commonly overlooked area. People who weren't old enough to remember a sibling who died um, absolutely experienced the loss, but she had nothing to sort of rooted in only a, a picture or two. Um, so what she did was sort of construct through other people in her life who she thought her her sister would have been um, and through a sister-in-law who was very important to her and and that kind of thing and, and found that that was enough for her. For other people, um, you know, there might be things they haven't looked for. Like, I ultimately was able to get my parents to talk, but before yeah, I t- did that... Tell us a little bit about your story. It is so interesting. Your parents would not talk. Well, first of all, you didn't want to
0: talk about it, right? I mean, you... Or, you know, the whole family was frozen, let's put it that way. The family couldn't talk about it at all. Yeah. Um, and so and then you decided
1: uh, after what, some therapy and, and being older, and what triggered you to decide? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember a specific trigger. I just remember feeling like I needed to do this and I needed, I needed to know. And, it, you know, it also became clear as I was working on the book how much information I lacked. Um, I was six when my brother got sick, and... 14 when he died, and I had just been given so little information that I was still describing his disease in the terms um, in which it had been described to me when I was six. So um, I first started actually by reading my brother's medical records, which my father offered to me. I think, in lieu of, of telling me. Now, you, yeah, you you pursued them, though. You pursued yeah. your
0: parents. I mean, he didn't just suddenly offer them. I, I love the story about, wasn't it Thanksgiving? Was it Thanksgiving uh, or yeah. dinner
1: where your mother jumped up from the table and started putting oh, yeah. the dishes up? seriously. <laughs> <laughs> That was quite a story. We were sitting at Thanksgiving, and there was another couple there, and they innocently asked me how the book was going. And, you know, my parents are very proud that I got a book contract, but they really did not want to know anything about the book. And they never, you know, we never talk about my brother, certainly not as a threesome. Occasionally he would come up with my mother, but always the same sort of safe stories. So I never got any new information. And so I was telling these people that I was having a difficult time because I had, Lost memory because I had so frozen and suppressed, and because I had been young, and that it was difficult. And my father said, "Well, you know, I have all these records on microfiche. I don't know why I have them, but I got them, and they're there if you want to read them." And he says there might be something useful there, like nurses' notes and that kind of thing. And my mother just got furious and leapt up from the table, and you know, what did nurses know, and and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think, you know. It was it was telling a story that had not been told, and I think we all each sort of had our own grip on our own piece of this, and it was maybe threatening to her to feel like I was ruffling what had had worked in its own weird way um, for 20 years. Right. Um, you know, I was uh,
0: as a nurse and having worked in a hospital, I was very curious as to um, whether she might have been a little bit angry with your dad. You know, in just in terms of the medical community and the whole the whole situation, because. Who ever thought what happened would happen? Yeah. I mean, this this story is is not a story of a boy being taken to the hospital and putting in, in a bubble for, you know, how many years was it? Eight and a half. For eight and a half years. That's not the story. The story is a story of hope mm-hmm. that something, you know, that we'll find something. Yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if she was angry at the nurses or at my father's medical community. I mean, certainly it was difficult from my father, and I, I mean, I, I can't imagine what she might think, and she hasn't told me. I can imagine for my father, and he's intimated this, that it was extremely difficult to be an, a, a, an accomplished oncologist who cured a lot of other people of disease, but wasn't able to save his own son. Yes, right. Um, well, I know one of the things you said in the book too, which
0: was interesting, is before this dinner, you had called your father about it, and he hung up on you.
1: <laughs> I asked him some <laughs> detail about my brother's death, and he said, "I can't talk about this," and hung up. I mean, you is Yeah, I is, guess so. You know, but, you know I, needed, I needed it to write it. So um, so ultimately what happened was that I got to the last chapter of the book and I said, and I just knew that the last chapter had to be them speaking. At least I had to ask them because there had never been any speaking about my brother. And if they said, no, I, I won't talk to you about it, well, that would be a statement in the last chapter, you mm-hmm. know, itself about the nature of what happens to families with this kind of loss. And if they did speak, then it would be a gesture of hope, and it would be interesting, and who knew what might happen. And my father agreed readily, and we spoke, and, and it was cute. We, we talked in a restaurant, and um, toward the end of it, he you know, was sort of winding it up, and he said, well, do you have any more questions? This isn't so bad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so sweet. It isn't
1: so and, bad. And um, my mother at first said no, and then she sort of agreed. And then, we, you know, it got put off a lot, and finally I called her and said, I need to interview over the phone now because I have to finish this
0: book. Oh, I thought that would right? that you, you thought maybe it would have to be over the phone.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah. She, I could tell she felt a little bit cornered, but then she agreed, and, it, you know, I learned stuff I'd never known about my brother. It, it, was, it was amazing. And I have to say, it was not that it's been repeated since then, but it was a huge step. And now my brother's name is not mentioned often, but it does come up, and it comes up in conjunction with stories that I haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. So it did loosen something.
0: <laughs> right, of course, yeah. And your perseverance was, as I said, amazing. I'm just so impressed about how you took hold of your story and claimed it for yourself and persevered. Oh, thank you. You know, it's really wonderful. Elizabeth, do you want to
1: say what you thought about being a sibling and being there at the conference? Uh, I was just stunned that that other siblings had the experience of, of being able to be around other siblings who shared shared that loss. I just felt so alone when I went through it and it just made me imagine what it would have been like to know that others had gone through this and that there were commonalities. Um, It would have made a huge difference in the way that I think I was able to process that loss in my life. So I I was sorry it was not available to me at the time, but it was neat to see it now. Uh, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you, and and after this I'll
0: see if there's anything you uh, want to um, tell us before we end the show, but I also wanted to ask you, um, it seems like therapy might have been part of what moved you to decide to do more about Ted's life mm-hmm. and, and uh, reviewing it and getting information from your parents. I wondered if you had any thoughts on uh, if you did get a therapist, how you would find them and, and what you would need and that mm-hmm. kind of
1: you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm not a professional. What, the way it happened for me was that um, I had a friend who had a therapist that she very much liked and respected and she asked her for a couple of names and Um, and I called, I think, the first person on the list and had a conversation with her, and it was okay, and I went, and it it just turned out that it was a fabulous fit and that she got it right away and that Mm -hmm. she just assured me that it was a process that could work if I committed to it. Um, I like what you just said, a fabulous fit, Mm -hmm. and it was okay.
0: And and to our listeners, you do need to find that fit. Yeah. You do need to find somebody um, who can
1: um, sit with
0: bereaved people.
1: Right, right and not try and hurry you along. Um, and I have talked to people who have bad experiences with therapists who didn't get the loss or, or told them things like they should be over it. And, um, you know, most people are, are pretty quick to, to see that as a sign that they need to move on and find another therapist. So Right, exactly. It can and, don't happen. Be, and don't be afraid to do
0: it. Yeah, exactly. Because it doesn't work. I mean, it's like hiring anyone else. Exactly. Um, also, um, I wanted to ask you, would you recommend that people seek their medical records and
1: would you know how to go about it, or would you have any thoughts on that
0: since you worked in a hospital?
1: Um, you know, the medical records are medical records. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I don't know, actually, because my brothers were just handed to me. I'm not sure how someone might go about it. I, I was going to um, offer a few further suggestions uh, as far as people trying to find the information that would happen. because actually people who lost in childhood, the most common thing I heard from them as adults was, to this day, I don't know what happened. So mm-hmm. you have to know what happened. Um, so medical records, if you can get hold of them, uh, newspaper accounts. Um, Good so that, place to go. Yeah, and also other relatives or friends who were around at the time who may have felt that they were imposing or would have been to push their stories on them, but um, but but have a lot of memories of what happened and might be able to help. And I, I'm actually just now discovering some of those people who've read the book who've come forward and, and told me things that I never knew. So, <laughs> um, you know, you, you're information And, you know, you know. wouldn't have to write a book. You could be
0: telling people you're doing a memoir if you're a writer for yourself yeah. or a family yeah. history. And
1: writing is certainly a way to right. acquire. Right. But honestly, I think you, a lot of these people, if you just call them up and say, I, I never understood what happened, I need to know. Can you help me? You know, mm-hmm. my parents won't talk about it or can't talk about it or they're, they're no longer with us or, or whatever. But, that, you know, you may even find nurses and doctors who were there at the time. And just don't be afraid to ask. Right. Don't be afraid to ask. Just go for it and do it because you need the information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, you're a wonderful example of pursuing <laughs> pursuing
0: your parents and, uh, and letting them know that you're not doing it to blame. You're doing yeah. it
1: because you need the information. I think that's the key thing.
0: Yeah. I need yeah. the information.
1: Yeah. Uh, and once yeah. they understood that, they were very responsive. And even though it was difficult for them, they, they really wanted to help. Mm-hmm. So. I, I noticed one thing that you said, about I think, about dads is
0: your father immersed himself in your work and your mother immersed herself in you.
1: Yeah, yeah, which was difficult, especially at 14, you know, that's when you're trying to sort of get away from your parents. And mm-hmm. my mother had a, you know, I don't want to use the word death grip, but she had a pretty strong grip on me at that point. Because she probably was afraid that. She Was afraid, and, and she needed you know another child to invest herself in. She had spent every almost every waking minute you know focused on my brother, and suddenly he was gone. You know her whole raison d'être had disappeared. Now, do you have um, any thoughts about your
0: um, the the surviving sibling now? Do you think it's any easier if people have um,
1: other siblings, or do you um, think it makes no difference? Or? Not necessarily. I've talked to people who have had, you know, other siblings, but they lost the person who was their best friend, and and you just can't replace that. You know, all siblings have different relationships with one another, Um, and some people become closer to other siblings, and then that's a blessing for them. But other people um, not only don't get closer to other siblings, but they end up more estranged. So I think it it really varies. there's, there's, I think, a wanting that that you will get closer to other siblings, but I don't think that always transpires, much to many people's disappointment.
0: One of the lovely things with Compassionate Friends, I think, is their sibling program, and um, they these teens are together, and I noticed a, uh, a few of them were um, the the surviving sibling,
1: and getting mm-hmm. together
0: and talking about it um, mm-hmm. was was very, palling around with these kids was great, yeah, and emailing them and and connecting back and forth, yeah. So you mentioned also uh, Grace Chris's book, mm-hmm. uh, Grace Christ, Healing Children's mm-hmm. Grief, the mm-hmm. Sloan Kettering study. And one of the things for hope for our families is, uh, I think you mentioned it in terms of the fact that developmentally um, mm-hmm. how you respond has something to do with developmentally. But um, Grace does say from her study that 85% of families return to the pre-death functioning. That was after the death of a father. Yeah. So um, families do go on in, yeah. in some ways.
1: Yeah. yeah. Somehow we manage.
0: <laughs> Somehow we manage to move along. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, do you? Uh, what about grandparents? Do you have any thoughts about them uh, or other hmm. uh, cousins or anybody um, in th- that can help or any comments about them regarding sibling loss?
1: Um, I think if there are other, I mean, I, all those people are, are going through their unique loss as well, and they should be acknowledged not, not to just, you know, put them again on a step beyond siblings. I, I, I don't like this hierarchy of grief. I think everyone has a unique experience of a loss, so there's that. But if, if there are other friends, family members who um, are wondering how they can support the sibling, um, I think one thing is to support the parents because they're having a hard time functioning and, and – um, helping them to acknowledge that they can't do everything for, for the other children, that, that they're not able to parent right then fully and that's okay. And then to step in and, and be supportive for the other siblings, whether it's just hanging out with them and letting them know that they see them, letting them know that they know their experience is unique and and, and they can't understand it, but if they want to talk about it, that they are happy to listen. Um, so I think that can make a big difference. And the fact is parents are just – you know every, you, you, Grief is such an overwhelming experience for each individual, and so for someone to be in the midst of that and then, you know, expected to be a fully present parent for other children who are needy, I think it's just above and beyond. You just, you can't do it. So the thing is that that the people around these people need to step in and help these families.
0: Yeah, and I also think that we need to think in terms of um, mother and father or stepfather or whatever rather than parents as Mm -hmm. a unit. Mm -hmm, Because they are up and down and grieving differently. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, the expectations. There are a huge number of expectations on everyone. The kids have to go back to school. You know, everything has to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, it's time for us to close our show. And um, before I close, Elizabeth, I wanted to say how impressed I am with your courage and your journey (sighs) in healing. It's really wonderful. And I hope everyone will pick up this book and, and tell other people about it because it is a wonderful journey. And I'd also um, like to thank your parents, Dr. and Mrs. DeVita, for giving other parents the message that it's never too late to tell their story. <laughs> uh, you know, and they, they did. They yeah, did. Uh, they did. It, it, threw, it was through your perseverance, but they did. And uh, that's a, a wonderful example to people. If you've held your story and or if your siblings who want to know um, a uh Get the book and take Elizabeth's example of us. Do it. <laughs> because it's really a wonderful thing. And you're a real voice of hope for all of those bereaved siblings who seek information and understanding. Oh,
1: thank and you. I really appreciate
0: you being on the show today.
1: It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to
0: Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.